0: Thank you, and welcome. We're here in studio today. Um, I'm Ashley McGuire, and I'm here with my colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Pachati-Bear, and we're so blessed to be joined by our guest today, who is Meg McDonald, and Meg is the editor-in-chief of Verily Magazine, and it's really great for me to have Meg here because um, many years ago, Meg and I did a journalism fellowship together for people who were hoping to get their start, uh, get a toe in the water, and here we are years later working in the field. So Meg, thanks for being here today. It's great to be
1: with you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Um, Meg, you know, I introduced you as the editor-in-chief of Verily Magazine, but I'm not sure how many of our listeners will know what that is. Tell us a little bit about the magazine, um, what's your mission, and how is it
1: that you came to be uh, its chief editor. Absolutely. So Verily Magazine is a li- online women's lifestyle and cultural magazine with the tagline, less of who you should be, more of who you are. So we were started in 2012 by a group of a group of friends in um, New York City so um, these women really saw a dearth of quality women's media that was relatable and authentic and um, actually helpful and good for women and so they started out as a print magazine so there were several issues of print before they switched to an online platform which is where we primarily are and every day we put out content that's really meant to edify the lives of women into um, I you know I would say you know strengthen their core of understanding that the world really needs more of who they are are today.
0: Well that's a wonderful mission and you know I have to say now I'm the mom of an almost seven-year-old and when we are in the checkout line at grocery stores I frequently have to turn around magazines because she can read and she can see what's on the cover of these magazines and both the images and the words Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's just such a need for uh, healthy content for young women um, how you know how has it been sort of competing with that marketplace? Are you finding there is a market for what for what it is that you're producing?
1: Yeah something we're finding a lot with our readers is exactly what you're talking about a frustration about the representation of women in the culture and then also a real fatigue that um, the media, um, just really pushes this more of like how you should be thinner. You should be thinner. You should you know impress you know someone in the bedroom and impress in the boardroom. And you know motherhood is not valued and marriage is not valued. And there really what we know from social data and just from the experiences of our readers is a desire for a publication that tells them the exact opposite. That says you are enough. Your values are good. Your desires are good and true. And you can actually reach them. And um, and there's a way that a path forward for you. So I think the best feedback that we love to hear from readers that we hear often is reading Verily is sort of like the feeling of when I shut the door at the end of the day and I can Mm. breathe deeply and say okay like I can do this. Um, So we get we hear that a lot from readers and and I think yeah we're growing in that regard.
2: That's great. Meg, this is Andrea. Um, One of the things that I thought was really cool was your policy on the use of Photoshop. And being someone slightly older, significantly older than the two of you, and and confronting gravity, (laughs) I really appreciate the fact that you want to lift up true woman's beauty, and I wondered if you could explain a little bit about the policy and, and how people have responded to it.
1: Absolutely, so the no Photoshop policy was started in the print days, and it really set Verily apart as a leader in the industry. At the time that it was started, um, the industry was really facing, the the industry meaning media, fashion, even corporate brands were facing an onslaught of criticism about how severely they were Photoshopping women to the point that it was, you know, they weren't even like human proportions and the way that yes. they would Photoshop, and and um, and verily, when they started, said that's you know it's just it sets too high of expectations to women. You know, like Ashley referring to her daughter looking oh, at pictures, yeah. and yeah, it so it's too high of an expectation. It is unrealistic to think that a woman's not going to have you know pimples from time to times, or moles on her back, or beautiful curves. And so verily decided we will never ever ever Photoshop. They also took it a step further and decided the models that we will use, many of them are not actually trained models; they're oh. everyday women. Um, and so, so that
2: beauty's reach. It,
1: the beauty is real. <laughs> the beauty is authentic, and so um, that's really our hope is so that a young woman could look into our publication and see this is this is achievable. That looks like me. They dress like me. They, you know, my my moles or my pimples or my freckles are not defects that I need to somehow mm-hmm. filter out. So we're not currently at print. We're trying to get back to print, um, and when we get back to print, we will continue with the no Photoshop. Um, but in far as our Instagram and our images online, we're very strict about filters and we're strict about really picking the more relatable images versus the um, the highly photoshopped or highly filtered images for those very same reasons. You've mentioned Instagram and, and other social
0: media outlets and one thing that I've noticed about Verily is the way you engage social media. What have you seen as the most sort of effective ways to get your message out through social media?
1: Well, our most popular um, on social media are what we call daily doses, and they're short phrases. We usually um, post them at 9 in the morning, and it's meant to be an empowering, encouraging vote of confidence. Um, I think the tagline we like to put with that is, you know, a reminder that the world needs more of you today. So women really have come to see that as a trademark of Verily. We find that um, if we're late or if we forget one day, women will write us and say, where was my daily dose today? <laughs> so, um, And throughout the day, people are you know sharing those and liking those. So. That's been really um, a beautiful um a beautiful way that we can empower women very simply. Um, they can share it with their friends very simply. The other ways is, um, again, the relatable images, um, articles that are relatable, you know, the topics that we address are things like how to, you know, handle conflict with difficult colleagues to time management to keeping in touch with your siblings when you're grown up and you're all busy with jobs and families. And um, so really just speaking to what are the certain pressure points in a woman's life are the things that might be stressing her and how can we offer her just a simple tweak or a simple way that she can um, she can move forward closer to those desires.
0: You mentioned um, marriage as something that modern most modern women's magazines aren't exactly promoting Mm -hmm. and um, I don't really read many of them but you know I think from what they're screaming out from the covers it's not exactly um, pro-marriage. And, you know, this isn't your first um, go at managing uh, a a sort of digital platform that's promoting something. Tell us a little bit about your past work in trying to promote, uh, you know, marriage as a... a positive social good.
1: Absolutely, so when Ashley and I met, actually I was, um, the journalism project that we both got fellowships on, my topic was on um, marriage and in, in particular the increasing divide between um, the wealthier Americans and the middle class and poor Americans mm-hmm. on marriage. So um, basically what we're seeing, Charles Murray calls it a coming apart of America, but basically those who have a high school education or less are less likely to get married by pretty staggering numbers than those who have a college education. And what that means, especially for young women and young men and their children, are higher rates of poverty, higher rates of single parenthood, higher rates of depression and alcoholism, and um, a whole different other host of issues in their lives. And so I, for um, prior to being at Fairly ran an online platform that was called I Believe in Love. That... Um, was storytelling from the young adults and those demographics so these young adults that worked in factories they worked in coffee shops they were single moms or single dads or um, and they it was really giving them a place to tell their stories about their desires for marriage and family and um, for a more authentic dating and you know it's interesting to um, i remember talking with a lot of them about magazines and how frustrated they were the magazines would say things like you know date this way and they're like but that doesn't work like they're not <laughs> giving us real advice and mm-hmm. um and so so, um, so that work really led naturally into um, Verily where we're, the stuff that we talk about with relationships is, as it relates to romantic is how to handle conflict, what qualities to look for in a person that you might want to marry, um, how family of origin impacts the way that you love other people, um, how to... Um, just how to um, how to really communicate better and love each other better and um, not as much what, you know, the secular publications of, you know, how to impress them in the bedroom. Um, we obviously would never go
2: there, so. Well, Meg, I was just thinking about it. Um, having gone to the grocery store a lot recently, <laughs> we tend to always run out of things. Um, the message that's being pushed in secular magazines is frightening. It's gross often, and... Um, you seem to be offering a counter that's much more beautiful, much more filled with light and love and real and accessible. Do you see people, you know, is it one of those kind of emanating effects that m- people are telling their friends, check out Verily, is uh, is your readership expanding, um, and are people asking for more commentary on certain areas? Absolutely. So. Um, just on the point of relationships,
1: because I think this is where a lot of people are really interested about you know the message that secular publications are pushing versus what we are. Our relationship content is some of our most popular content. It's um, mm-hmm. the content that grows at the highest volume. Um, it's not content that people always are maybe going to share on their Facebook or on their you know Instagram. Like I'm not going to share like how to handle conflict with your boyfriend. Yeah. Like I don't <laughs> you know like I don't see that on Facebook. At least Facebook. not to
2: your boyfriend's mother. Right,
1: right, right. <laughs> um, but it is shared one to one with women. So so it is shared a lot. We, you know, we hear a lot of like, oh yeah, my girlfriends have a text exchange, and we're constantly sharing Verily articles, or we're constantly, you know, hey, check out this article, and that is the organic growth that we're seeing at Verily a lot. Is this sort of. Um Yeah, this sort of just like one-to-one sharing of like, oh, I hear that you're, you know, thinking about this. Check out this article I saw in this publication, and you should really read them for more tips. But then I think also, um, yeah, there's a lot of just searching online. Um, You know, people talk about Google being, you know, the largest search engine. People search about things related to relationships, and they come to Verily. And um, that is another avenue of growth that we have is that we have a strong search presence, and they're able to – people that, you know, maybe – are more inclined to pick up Cosmo we are also reading a great message from Verily. And hopefully that's making a difference too. So,
0: um, Meg, you're, you're Catholic, we're both Catholic and, um, you're, you know, you're really working in a secular lane. Mm -hmm. Um, but how does your faith inform the way you think about these issues? And, you know, for, uh, listeners who may or may not be Catholic, what do you see as the way the church, um, informs or, or can inform our thinking about womanhood in a mm-hmm. culture that's so um, sort of what's the word I'm looking for, hostile or yeah. or, or misunderstands authentic womanhood and authentic
1: beauty. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So um, as it relates to the first part of your question of how my faith responds, I've since a young age always really been compelled by the belief that um, the Catholic Church doesn't, uh, things aren't true because the Catholic Church teaches it. Um, the Catholic Church teaches it because it's true. And mm-hmm. so um, being in a secular realm um, that's really, or working in a secular realm, it really helps be able to know like there are truths and we can teach those truths in ways that are. Accessible to those who don't share the faith that we share, Um, and that's um, that's powerful and good. And this this truth is for them too. It's not just for me as a Catholic, but it's also for them um, as well. So, so in that way, it it feels very natural. Um, To the second point about the authentic womanhood and and beauty, and um, I think that if you ask if you lined up ten women and asked them what their womanhood means, you're going to get. You know some similarities, and then you're also going to get a lot of differences. And I think one of the way that Verily, one of the things Verily really strives to do is to capture that you know diversity of thought. So the shampoo that works for curly hair is not going to work as great for straight hair. And so when we curating products, this is a basic answer. When we curate products, we're going to curate for multiple types of hair. Mm-hmm. But similarly, when we talk about communication styles, how an introvert communicates, how an extrovert communicates, are different. So we're going to talk in different ways. And so I think that um, how we um, how the church, if you look at the church in that way, of the diversity of women, look at the doctors of the church. Tres of Lisieux was very different than Catherine of Siena, (laughs) and she was very different than um, Teresa of Avila. You know, you see a diversity of the type of womanhood and the type of strength that these women had. So there's space for all different types, and it's about helping women to see there's not one prototype, there's a wide variety.
2: Meg, you just reminded me that I have girls who have very different hair types. And probably it's not fair to them to just put one big, huge container. Uh, but also that that you're absolutely right. Uh, the teaching of the, the church really does look at the person. And maybe one of the challenges that we've been struggling is we're thinking of women as this kind of amorphous entity rather than so unique and so specific to each individual woman with so many shared qualities, mm-hmm. but something that makes us um, kind of beloved and delightful in God's eyes for our own uniqueness? You know,
0: I um, was driving my daughter and an ad for Palm Beach Tan came on and their tagline is a better shade of you. (laughs) And they try to walk the line, they try to be verily and be all like, you're beautiful, but really you You need to 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 be be more tan. (laughs) And my daughter was listening to it and I kinda of wasn't paying attention and she's like, I don't need to be a better shade and I was like, That's yes, right. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, but it made me sad because I thought, How soon till that confidence really starts to fade, okay. you know, because the messages there's it's just an endless barrage. So um, I so appreciate uh, the contribution of Verily, and I hope that our listeners will um, seek it out. Where can, where can they find it? Is it a website?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The website is verilymag, V-E-R-I-L-Y, mag.com. And we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, I would encourage each and every one of you to check it out and encourage
0: uh, the other women in your life to do the same. And thank you, Meg, for joining Andrea and I today, and we
1: wish you the best. Thanks so much for having mm-hmm. me. Congratulations, Meg. Thanks so much and we're gonna head to a break
3: welcome back to conversations with consequences I'm your hostess Dr. Gracie Christie, and I am in studio with Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, my colleague, and my other colleague, Ashley McGuire. Hi, ladies. Hey, it's great to be with you. So this hour, we've been talking uh, about women in media, and we're joined by a very good friend of ours, Susie Pinto. She's the executive producer of EWTN News. She's a journalist, and she specializes in covering the Catholic Church. Welcome, Susie.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: Well it's wonderful to sit around the table and talk about female subjects (laughs) and especially female women in something so complicated as the media. And how long have you been in media, Susie?
4: I've been in media um, for the last 15 years. Um, I started out my career in Rome. I worked for the Vatican Press Office and I worked for a news agency that John Paul II founded called Vatican Information Service. And then I came back to the States and I went to a secular media company, uh, the ABC affiliate in Chicago, ABC7 Chicago, and um, I, it was a big newsroom, a completely different um, ball game than Rome, and now I'm here with, at EWTN specializing
2: in covering the church
4: and bringing the Catholic perspective to all news. Now
2: Susie, I think you're fabulous, and it's not just because you went to Northwestern, for undergrad, right? For undergrad? I, did, where? Yes. I guess. yes. Ca- I guess you did too, Undergrad, go, go cats. Go cats. <laughs> <laughs> go purple. Um, but I also think it's really interesting because you've had the experience working for a secular outlet and then working for a news agency within the church and then transitioning to where you are now, which is an agency reporting on the church, but with formation of, of Catholics. And And I was wondering if you kind of had a sense of... of did your, did your perspective change? Obviously as you grow uh, and matured in your profession it did, but but when your different roles changed from, from one group to another? Uh,
4: absolutely, I think that um, in every um, position I've held, uh, I've learned, you know, seen a different aspect of the business and I've been able to, um, you know, expand that, just that breadth, that depth of knowledge and so, um, you know, obviously when I first started out in Rome, I was, you know, young, I didn't have a lot of experience, and everything was a new experience when I would interview somebody or I would have to meet a deadline. So those are just, you know, the, the growing pains of, of your, your earlier career. And Much
2: like our very young podcast. <laughs> <laughs> except
3: not so fun. Because <laughs> we're not young, unmarried, and in Rome.
4: It, well, except you're all experts. even. <laughs>
3: oh, that's very nice of you to say.
4: So um, you know, as in a career, you each role you learn new things. You, you things you think you could never have done before. I remember when I went to ABC Seven from um, from Rome. I had a very specific narrow focus in Rome, and here I was in a big newsroom where there were two hundred people, and it was around the clock. You know, twenty four seven. And yeah. I thought to myself, when the first breaking news story happened, how am I going to do this? You know, you're you're. Stressed out. You have a news director behind you who's barking orders, and you have to get the story out. So, um, I think every professional experience just pushes your your limits and helps you to learn and and really um, you know dig in.
3: And before that, you were covering the Vatican, uh, the, a place where things move at a very different pace, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like
4: molasses. Exactly, exactly, well, and where people it? don't ask questions and people don't. It's a very, it's a very different. Environment, absolutely.
3: What was it like being a woman and a woman journalist in a place like the Vatican, which I imagine to be more of a of, of a man's club?
4: It is in some ways. I should <laughs> that's it, a little strong. Talk. Well, it's definitely you know there are definitely more men than women in the Vatican. That's for sure. Um, the Holy See Press Office is an interesting office within the Vatican. It's um, maybe a more. It's atypical in the sense that uh, it's mostly lay people. So I worked with other lay people from around the world. Um, There were several other women, so we weren't, um, you know, a tiny minority. So um, it was a great experience, and it was, uh, you know, unusual within the Vatican, but, you know, very much Catholics, lay Catholics who were committed and wanted to serve the church and uh, who were offering their professional services in order to get the message of the Vatican out and to help the Holy Father— to, um, you know, to reach the entire world. So it was um, a wonderful experience. It was, in many ways, you know, um, I was working with people from all over the world, and so we were all working in a third language, which was not native to most of us, so that was an interesting experience. <laughs> um, but really, it, it was uh, an experience that kind of defined my life and helped me sort of narrow my, um, you know, my professional goals.
0: Susie, you've, um, having worked both in secular media and now in Catholic media, um, what's your sort of take on today's coverage of the church?
4: You know, I, I think that um, one great thing now is that there are so many different Catholic outlets that are reporting on the church, and I think that that has grown out of a need from uh, a need that the faithful have expressed that they would like to uh, hear hear. Um, and they would like reporting on the church from a Catholic perspective, from a truly Catholic perspective, a a perspective that respects the teachings of the church and um, helps people understand those teachings. And so I think that um, that's very interesting because the media landscape, uh, you know, media is expensive to produce and at a time when most outlets are uh, paring down and trying to streamline there's been this rebirth of Catholic media and I think it really speaks to that need that that desire uh, from the public that they want to hear information that is uh, true and represents the church's teachings, but also helps people understand the events that are going around and going on and um, and from that Catholic perspective. Um, I think that there are so many great, uh, news organizations, news organizations out there right now. Of course, EWTN, who I work for, is the biggest religious media network in the world, and we are uh, available on digital radio, television, and so we really have been able to, to branch out, which is fantastic. Um, but I, we have I have many other colleagues in, in different Catholic organizations who are also doing fantastic work. So I think it's a really beautiful moment for Catholic media.
2: Susie, you are. Um kind of developed EWTN uh, news nightly. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how not to fall into the trap that most news shows are doing, which everything is a frenetic breaking moment. How do, how do you keep kind of yourself and and your viewers and listeners grounded and, and offer them a chance to dig deeper? Um, and and not be chasing a story, but actually kind of absorbing and contemplating the stories, because I think that that's something that that I've noticed in the work that you've done is is stands out. Well, EWTN
4: e- e- News Nightly was born um, out of a desire to get um, to report on all the news, but get from a Catholic perspective. And I think and from the very beginning, we were very conscious that we did not want to um, just Turn the story out. We wanted to provide some depth and some context there.
3: Susie, let me tell our listeners, in case they don't know, that EWTN News Nightly is a TV show, a, news, a nightly TV show uh, filmed here in DC from the Catholic perspective, but it's TV.
4: It's TV, exactly, and it, it airs. Um, e- uh, Lauren Ashburn is the anchor. She's a fantastic anchor who's really digging into public policy issues and how they intersect with Catholic social teaching, and you can hear it at 6 and 9 p.m. Eastern um every night, Monday through Friday. So um, we, so the show was really born. Um, it, it was conceived with this idea that we want to give more depth and context to to um, the everyday news agenda. And um, I think that one major thing for me, at least when we first started the show was to to remind our team, and our reporters not to fall into groupthink, and that just because yeah. everyone else is saying it or reporting it doesn't mean we have to do the same. And we have the luxury of um, we you know we have the luxury of being able to choose the stories that we cover, and um, and and talk to people who are. You know, outside of the regular, you know, not just the, the the political newsmakers in here in D.C., but other people who have a uh, come from a Catholic, uh, you know, background and can help us to understand these issues um, in in the light of our faith. It's really
2: interesting. Earlier in our episode, uh, Ashley and I had a chance to speak with Meg McDonald, um, editor in chief now at Verily, and she was saying a similar thing. Obviously, Verily has a, a different purpose and a different audience, in in some respects, but but being able to offer something more profound, go deeper than what is, is kind of out there in, in the you know, mass market, and provide a, uh, everyone a chance, your, your viewers a chance to, to just kind of mull things over. And, and ex- I think that they're desiring. People want more. People want to be challenged and want to be informed in a way that isn't so um, kind of breaking.
3: Let me remind our listeners that they're listening to conversations with consequences and we're talking to Susie Pinto, executive news director from EWTN and we're talking about women in media Catholic women in Catholic media at, at this point of the conversation what, what, when you were I feel so I, I've watched EWTN News nightly for a long time and I feel that that the, that the current president the current administration that when when this administration started, it sort of turned the media a little bit up on it uh, on its head. Like, maybe before that, there was um, a, a sort of Catholic media I'm talking about. Well, the other media, too, more, maybe.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think the entire, all, all, the, entire of, all world the media. media.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, it affected Catholic media differently.
4: Well, I think that, um, you know, it, it presented a very interesting um, sort of conundrum because, on the one hand, the president is doing a lot of things that um, help, that, that you know, support life and in terms of um, religious liberty and, um, giving, you know, passing a lot of leg- legislation, or not passing, but signing legislation mm-hmm. and promoting um, values and issues that are important to religious voters. But at the same time, there are also obvious um, conflicts in terms of just, you know, moral teaching. So um, I think it's a very interesting time to be Catholic in, in D.C. and to <laughs> and to be in the world of politics.
3: How, and how does EWT, how, does, how do you think EWTN manages that? That well, straddles all those those incongruities.
4: Well, what we try to do is just present the news in a truthful, transparent way and to provide uh, when there is, you know, when the church does provide some, um, you know, a, a, a clear teaching that will help illuminate some of the public policy issues, we try to really highlight that that teaching. You know, sometimes our news, you know, it's, it's, it's a Catholic intersection with a capital C, and other times it's a lowercase c, which mm-hmm. so, so maybe that means in a story you provide a more humane uh, approach or you look at the dignity of the human person and you try to put that at the center of the story. So while um, not every public policy issue has to deal directly with, um, you know, Catholic moral teaching, um, many times our faith has a lot to offer and can really help us look at an issue and, and make sense of it. Susie,
0: you've um, you've got kind of a jet-setting life. You've done a lot of travel and a lot of that has been following Pope Francis. Um, What are some of the most memorable um, trips you've been on or or things that you've sort of witnessed firsthand in in your travel uh, for EWTN?
4: You know, I had the pleasure of um, being um, g- traveling to the Philippines when Pope Francis went to the Philippines. And that was an incredible experience because just the sheer number of people that came to see the Pope and to attend his Mass, I think that was one of the biggest gatherings of um, people in the entire how
3: many, how many people are we I talking think, about? I
4: think there are about 6 million people who came wow. to... In one mass? In one mass. <laughs> oh, and imagine being... That's amazing. Imagine being in that crowd and, you know, having to cover it, but also, you know, um, just navigating seas of people and, uh, you know, well-wishers. And What uh, about
3: the time that you went to Cuba? Because you passed by Miami and visited me on the way to Cuba. I did. That I, must
4: have been a tremendous trip. That was a tremendous trip. That was a fascinating trip. Um, you know, it, it was... Uh, we, got, we, we had the opportunity to talk to so many Cubans and, you know, that was difficult because a lot of Cubans didn't want to speak for, you know, they were afraid to speak um, openly. Um, so it was a trip that was um, in many ways bittersweet because while they were so happy that the Pope was coming, um, they clearly are suffering and, um, you know, many people felt that um, they, they, they couldn't express their true opinion or couldn't actually come to see, to see the Pope, people who were, Political dissidents. You um,
3: visited, didn't you? Visit a, a famous dissident.
4: Yes, Dr. Oscar Bissett. Oh, yeah, he's wonderful. And he was not um, allowed to come to the mass. And mm-hmm. he. He's I a w-
3: doctor that refused to perform abortions. Right? Yes, exactly. And, and spoke up for um, for the dignity of human beings in Cuba, and has spent years in jail and being
4: tortured. Yes, exactly. And at the time, he was pretty much under house arrest. When I interviewed him. Um, So there was that juxtaposition, juxtaposition, great joy at having the Holy Father in Cuba and, of course, a great Catholic tradition, but which has been in many ways destroyed by the communist regime there. Mm
2: -hmm. Susie, one of the things that I most enjoy about Pope Francis is his South American character and being a Spanish speaker uh, like Gracie and like you. um, There are things, even when he's speaking not in Spanish, that I can hear a cadence that's unique to his um, background as an Argentinian. And I was wondering if you experience the same kind of, there's something clever in how he f- puts phrases together, how he engages with people, and not just when he's making trips to, to uh, Latin American countries, but also here and Maybe you you have the same observations.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. If you do speak Spanish, you do you can hear that when he speaks Italian. There's a lot of um, people in Italy call it you know Spitaliano, like the Spanish <laughs> and Italian or spagnolo. They um, so anyway. He definitely. I think that um, the fact that Pope Francis is a Latin and is is Argentine really. Um, facilitates his his communication, his connection with people, because that is part of the culture. Yeah. And of course, um, you know he 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 communicates that with every person that he meets, whether in whatever language he's speaking. And you really see that in Rome when these crowds of people come from all over the world and they get to touch him or they or they hand their baby over to to be kissed by him, and he has this. This very special way of connecting with people, and I think that very much comes from his Latin roots.
3: I thought I felt that a lot when I was in Philadelphia. I think with with you, Susie, and with you, Ashley, the three of, were there when he came to Philadelphia, and I was listening to him speak in Spanish. Oh, it, it was a little shocking in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> He went no. off the cuff. He went off the cuff, right? Yeah. I don't mean shocking in a bad way. I mean there was it was a shock to hear him be so colloquial and yeah. and warm.
4: And 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 that I think you're speaking about the when he was um, talking about family life. Yes,
3: that was a great talk. Again.
4: And that was a that was a beautiful uh, talk because he really understands the challenges of family life. I mean, uh, and I remember him talking about. Throwing plates, uh-huh. throwing and, plates. yeah, and we throw how, plates
2: all the time.
3: <laughs> and how important it is to throw plates. He said, "Tiren los platos, throw the plates. después <laughs> lo, lo recogen." <laughs> he was he was fine with throwing plates. I'm glad. That's good. That makes me feel good.
4: Well, it's a, he's a pastor at heart, isn't mm-hmm. he? And he understands that family life is messy, and uh, it's beautiful to hear him just you know recognize that.
2: What's really great is is that a lot of non Spanish speaking or or. Uh, on Latino, people are responding to his engagement. And I think that it's it's shocking, right? Because it's not what we're used to in the buttoned-up uh, past, but it's really bringing people closer and seeing the church kind of as part of a family, an extended family that that's comforting, that's encouraging.
3: You know, and bringing this back to journalism, you know, Pope Francis can be a, a journalistic, uh, a Catholic Surprise. journalistic uh, challenge, right?
4: <laughs> he is, because he is constantly... Pretty, you know, making news, saying interesting things, saying controversial things. Um, you know, I was recently in Rome, and the beat, the Vatican beat, is one of the most difficult beats. It always has been traditionally, but I would say even more so under this pontificate, because there is just so much activity, uh, there are so many different um, themes and topics that he's talking about, so it can be, it's, it's a breakneck speed over there.
2: Susie, do you think that the secular press understands Francis? by comparison to maybe well, more well-formed Catholic uh, people in the media, or is it? I think that, um, you
4: know, I think generally speaking, the the secular press has done um, a good job of covering his pontificate. Of course, I think when it comes to some thorny, controversial issues, I think there is a bit of a misunderstanding, um, especially when he um, can speak off the cuff and, uh, you know, certain um, things that he says are interpreted by, by them perhaps in, in, you know, in a light that's not exactly 100% authentic or true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think generally the, 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 the secular media has done a good job and I think I have to say that at the very least they're paying very close attention to the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and I think that's a great thing. So um, I think in terms of evangelizing and bringing interest in the church, I think that um, that can only do good things.
3: Susie, what's in the future for you? I know that your, your current position is new Right. Um, so, what are you what are you looking forward to doing in your in your new position?
4: Well, I'm I'm you know I'm going to be looking at um, our editorial uh, strategy and direction, helping um, Dan Burke, who's the president of EWTN News, uh, to uh, take basically take EWTN News, um, you know, hopefully to another level. Um, I'm going to be helping to develop a new content and programming. And um, just making sure that we are covering all the, the Catholic issues that, that we should be covering and, um, you know, clarifying Catholic issues when there's a doubt.
2: Well, and, and the church has such an important role right now in, in helping to clarify so many issues. So we're really looking for you to continue to shine in your job. And yeah, we'll
3: be watching you in your career. Thank thanks. you, Susie, for joining us. Thank you. Morning. The Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. So today I've chosen two clips from our, our daily clips and they're both from the Wall Street Journal by chance. But the first one is uh, from June 30th, 2019, Church, School, and the Supreme Court. Uh, the subtitle is, The Justices Finally Tee Up a State Blaine Amendment for Review. So this article is about a case going on in Montana where um, there is a, a Blaine Amendment. And I think maybe Andrea should tell us about it since she's our legal ego.
2: Um, it's, it's a really great news for the law and for religious freedom. It's called Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. And just like you mentioned, Gracie, it's uh, the, the court has a chance to finally put these Blaine Amendments to rest. Um, these were uh, kind of laws that were popping up in different states that had a really anti-Catholic bias in their history and they would prevent the state from offering generally available programs or supports to groups just because they were attached to a church. And um, a couple of years ago, the two years ago, the court had a chance to uh, address this in Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, and it was uh,
3: and that was that was about playground material, right? That the state was uh, handing out to private enterprises.
2: So it was a cool, to private school. Yeah, it was a cool program to uh, recycle used tires for little kids' playgrounds. And a Lutheran church wanted to resurface their preschool playground, and the state said that they couldn't because they were a church. And the Supreme Court said, "Oh yes, you can." Uh, because denying <laughs> denying the ability of of this church, who was otherwise qualified, uh, just because they were a church, was uh, religious discrimination.
3: Now, why didn't this case put the Blaine amendments uh, out of out of out of play?
2: Well, I think that's a good question, Gracie, and and the court is really going to have to look at whether Trinity Lutheran answers it or whether there's more to the issue because of uh, the benefits to to individual families. In this case, it's dealing with a tuition um, scholarship uh, allowing families to take in, which is crazy, hundred and fifty, up to $150 tax credit if they send their kids to uh, religious uh, any private school. And Montana was saying, you, you can't take advantage of this tax credit if the school that you choose to send your child to is religiously affiliated. And both no, of us... When I
3: was- yeah, when I was reading this article, it it, uh, it made me. I was thinking back to when we had um, we were talking to Mary Hassan about um, her her book and Teresa Farnan's uh, book "Get Out Now" about the horrible state of public schools. I mean, the way that public schools are really failing students and also indoctrinating them in things that that as parents we find reprehensible, right? Certain sexual ideologies and all that. Um, so the Blaine amendments make it impossible. I think, in many states for, for, the, for the state um, to treat p- private parochial schools, for instance, with the same um, benefits that they give other schools.
2: Well, and even if our local school districts aren't as horrible as some of the most horrible, as Catholics and as, as many Christians out there want our children's education to have a religious component to it and to be treated somehow right. as second-class citizens— um, in the state is really a shame.
3: Well, you know, we only have one minute left, but let me go to the second article that we picked out of the clips, and that's also from the Wall Street Journal. And it says, Vatican, it's from, sorry, July 1st, Vatican hits back at attempts to break confession secrecy. So I thought this was really interesting. In, in Australia, in the United States, and maybe in the U.K., As well, maybe not. Maybe U.S. and Australia, the there there has been a lot. There has been talk about um, erasing the, um, you know, making priests liable if they don't break the seal of the confessional. If they listen to a confession, if they hear a confession of someone who is committing child abuse, and the Vatican has written a five-page document that Pope Francis personally approved and ordered its publication, um, underscoring the importance and the absolute inviolability of the confessional and the secrecy of the confessional.
2: Well, and I think we need to realize as much as we want to remedy uh, any kind of child abuse or any kind of crime that's going on, um, above that is we want people's salvation. And so we need to pray that these horrible offenses are come to light in other ways but that the people who come to the confessional can be able to get absolution and, 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 and hopefully feel, and not, not committed their crimes anymore.
3: Right, and feel safe that the, that, that, that their sins will remain uh, there and not, not ever be told abroad, right? That's a very important thing. Well, anyway, it's time to wrap up, and you can find these links to these articles on the podcast show notes. To subscribe to the podcast and the media clips, go to the thecatholicassociation.org. Next, we have our... Weekly homily segment from Father Landry who is kind enough to give me get to give us three minutes of his time to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel.
5: This is Father Roger Landry. Let's turn to the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us each Sunday. He's going to send out his seventy two disciples to proclaim his kingdom and to bring the power of that kingdom out. Jesus wants us to see ourselves. In those 72. A short time earlier in St. Luke's Gospel, Jesus had sent out just the 12 apostles, those who would become his first priests. But Jesus was teaching us very clearly here that to share the Gospel is not meant to be the tasks of priests alone. So he appointed 72, probably the 12 apostles, and 60 of whom we would call today lay people. Sent them out to all the neighboring towns and villages. The harvest is abundant, he said, but the laborers are few. Jesus not only instructed them to pray to God the Father to send more laborers, but was showing them the way the Father responds to that prayer, precisely by sending them out as laborers for his harvest for souls. I've always thought that the 72 was more than a symbolic number going back to the Old Testament with the 70 judges chosen by the Lord to help Moses do his work, but it probably implies that the Lord was basically sending out everyone who was a willing, consistent follower. He wanted all hands on deck, just as the Lord Jesus in this gospel scene sent out basically everyone he had. So today he wants each of us to grasp that he intends us to be sent out as well. How are we to carry out this mission, this apostolate of sharing the gospel of the kingdom that Christ entrusts to us? The gospel of Jesus gives us three principles that are valid in every age, which we can examine as necessary for us to accomplish that mission. First principle is that Jesus sent us out with a message. Peace in the kingdom of God is at hand the two are allied. the peace they were to announce was precisely the peace that Jesus had been preaching peace through God through the forgiveness of the sin by which human beings cut themselves off from God and the way into that peace is to enter God's kingdom to allow the Lord to be the king of our thoughts and actions. So they were supposed to be heralds of the joy that comes from peace and reconciliation with God, which has an enormous potential to attract others who are so obviously not at peace with God and others. Second, Jesus sent us out with a certain packaging for that message. As lambs in the midst of wolves, not wolves in the midst of lambs, we were sent out to propose the gospel in a compelling way to others' freedom, not to impose anything. They were to proclaim, we were to proclaim the gospel with confidence, but also with meekness. We were not called to proclaim it with the force of weapons or the power of threats, but with the persuasive power of our faith, goodness, and holiness. This is why Jesus instructed us to go out with no purse, no bag, no sandal. How could we possibly proclaim effectively the kingdom of God is at hand if we were also trying to increase the size of our purse and build a kingdom of our own, or if even if others suspected us? from doing for doing so. And that brings us to the third point that Jesus was sending us out as lambs among wolves with the message of a true revolution. We've heard the words the kingdom of God is among you so many times that perhaps they no longer startle us. We need to think back to the content The 72 were sent to proclaim this kingdom at at a time of greatest strength in the Roman Empire, an empire that didn't take well any challenges to its authority, could be more brutal against insurrectionists than a pack of wolves against injured animals. In the midst of this Roman dominion, the 72 ordinary disciples of Christ were commissioned as ambassadors of a different kingdom, of a different type of allegiance, the kingdom of God. The two kingdoms didn't necessarily conflict, as Jesus himself pointed to when he said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. But he also said that when there was a conflict, we were to seek the kingdom of God and God's righteousness and everything else would be given to us besides. Jesus' disciples in every age are sent to proclaim the priority of the kingdom of God, a priority we are supposed to be modeling and not merely mouthing. So today, Jesus wants a Uh, This Sunday, Jesus wants a consequential conversation with us. Precisely to hear his summons to us to come to him and to be sent forth so that we might be the heralds of his kingdom, the kingdom that is meant to last forever. God bless you all.
3: Thank you so much, Father Landry, for those three minutes that you give us so generously uh, out of your busy week for uh, the homily, a short homily for this upcoming uh, week's gospel, this upcoming Sunday's gospel, and it's a great preparation for us. So this episode, this segment—no, um, I'm sorry, this episode of our podcast and radio show has been really fun for me because uh, it's been about women in Catholic media, and I now am a woman in Catholic media. I'm I'm very much enjoying this podcast, and uh, it's been it's been quite a challenge, and and I really admire people like Susie and Meg. Who have um, gone out there into the world of journalism, which is so complicated, and have made a great success of it in in ways that are that are not only uh, successful uh, because they attract listeners and watchers and 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 deliver a fabulous product, but also successful because at the same time they are um, being good. They're being um, witnesses, right, to the gospel truths and making. Uh, you know, t- taking souls uh, towards the church and towards Christ and towards God and, and being such a positive um, influence on everything that they touch. So that was wonderful, speaking with Susie and Meg, and, and I'm so grateful that Andrea and Ashley were able to join me. Um, it'd be very hard to do this by myself. It'd be impossible to do it by myself. And uh, well, it's been a wonderful time. So you've been listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie. And I am your regular host at um, our podcast and radio show, which is a service of the Catholic Association. Please be uh, kind enough to subscribe to our shows wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcast. Please subscribe, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week.